Coaching with Perry, a podcast about teacher education in general and learning to teach in particular. I'm your host, Perry Alexander, doctoral student in the College of Education at the University of Texas. I'm glad you're here. As I wrap up the last of four episode mini podcasts on coaching, I can't help but realize one very key component across the project. The College of Education is full of brilliant people, full of story, full of intention, and that can't be denied. Each participant has shared just minutes of their work with us, but those slices have added up to a tremendous pie of activism, scholarship, rich pedagogy, and curricular choices that speak to our success as a collective across the school. Michael Apple writes in his book, Educating in the Quote-Unquote Right Way, that within each and every institution of education at all levels, within the crevices and cracks, so to speak, there are counter-hegemonic practices being built and defended but they are too often isolated from each other and never get organized into coherent movements and strategies. Part of the task, Apple writes, is to make public the successes in contesting the control over curricula, pedagogy, and evaluation, and in reaching the children that our educational system has quote-unquote left behind all over our work. So although public storytelling may not be sufficient, he says, It performs an important function. It keeps alive and reminds ourselves of the very possibility of difference in an age of audits, commodifications, and disrespect, end quote. So today's episode acts much as a beacon to future field supervisors, cooperating teachers, and pre-service teachers. It calls them to consider how they're slowing down considering the history and locality of their school communities and looking carefully at the language, action, and impact of their instruction. I um, have been in a uh, graduate doctoral program for about five years now. I'm a transfer student from the University of Utah to University of Texas uh, Curriculum Instruction, um, the Bilingual and Bicultural Department. And uh, I guess my journey has been one of those where I've made a lot of U-turns. I love teaching. I love being in the classroom. And uh, I'm I'm a dreamer. (laughs) Um, Since I was a little girl, I dreamed of being a teacher, but I had a lot of issues with reading and writing. Um, At the farm, my family farm, I would line up the chickens in the chicken coop and pretend I was, you know, teaching, even though I didn't know how to read or write myself. I just knew I was the best I could ever <laughs> receive. And that pretty much has been my journey. Um, I keep on thinking about the dreams that I've had as an educator and eventually um, decided in the mentoring of other educators in my bilingual campus, I thought, well, maybe I could become a teacher trainer. That was my first guest, Adeli Unostrosa Achoa, a doctoral student in UT's bilingual and bicultural program. Her story brings so beautifully into view how our professional identities are shaped by our personal identities and our stories. So mentoring, in Adele's case, is much an act of unfolding, revision, and as she says, dreaming. And I, I really have appreciated, I guess, the journey of the co-mentoring, the co, co-guidance. Um, I have returned to the classroom a couple of times while I started my graduate program. And 
think about those tools. And now I'm again outside the classroom and going through this journey again. So that's a little bit about me and why I'm here. I love that you are a dreamer and that this has been sort of part of your path for so long. And it sounds like you've had to make some different decisions and um, about how to kind of bridge these different practices together, right? So um, one of the things that I'm thinking about is valuing courage and determination. And it sounds like you've you've had a little bit of experience with that. Um, can you talk about anything in particular about field supervision that has challenged you? Uh, that's a very good question because of our current status and our context that we're living today. Um, I entered this year with the field supervision with a lot of uncertainty, fear, uh, because of the remote situation that we're in. How would I mentor um, teachers that have dreams like I do in a world uh, that required a screen technology? Um, sometimes it was over the Zoom screen. Sometimes it was emailing or texting. And I kept on thinking of my training, you know, this, you know, don't, this Freire, Freire, you know, Paulo Freire's model of, you know, no banking, make sure there's dialogue. And I'm like, how am I going to do that? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. this border, there's this screen that serves as a border. And um, I was going to have a harder time reading the nuances of my student, you know, the uncomfortable jitters or whatever. And uh, and I felt guilty when a lot of the conversations had to happen through texting or emailing. I just didn't feel like it was natural. But, um, but I always kept in mind that I had to, you know, that taking responsibility, like as beings, capable of knowing, right? Mm -hmm. um, knowing of what we know, but also knowing that that we don't know and it's okay. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what I wanted to pass on to to my, uh, to, to the pre-service teacher, to the teacher and intern, because I wanted to make sure that uh, there was an understanding that we were both going to be learning in this world of knowing and not knowing. Yeah. That's a lot. There's a lot of that right now, for sure. Um, can you think of anything then in particular that you feel like you did really well? Um, because that's a lot of pressure to carry around. And I know that when you say they have dreams like yours, like that's a real emotional and important um, piece, right? So where do you feel like you succeeded that you would, you would encourage other field supervisors if they were taking this up? Where would you, what would you tell them to do or to try? Um, because our program focused a lot on, on identity, identity building, um, I think that's where I, I used as my guidance. And so I wanted my student to know who is Adeli, <laughs> um, not only my teacher identity, but the other components of my identity. And in that way, open it up for him to, to tell me who are you as a, as a person, but as this teacher. Um, and then once we built that relationship, it was easier to have the conversations that were what I call, they're not necessarily uncomfortable, but um, I guess they're the courageous, brave conversations, right? Um, and a lot of times it wasn't even about the content that he was teaching. He was excited about teaching these contents, science, math, whatever it was, did his research, asked for advice, but it was more like the responsiveness. Mm -hmm. And I didn't catch on to that until I interviewed his CT. And I asked her, how can I further like 
assist with this process since we're all in this remote world. And she's like, teachers need to be ready to respond to the parents that are Spanish speaking parents. And so we have bilingual teachers that go in there that have, you know, this knowledge of the language and the culture, but they have really high expectations of how this Spanish is going to be taught. And I really never thought of like, oh, he's going to get attacked by a parent or the community is not going to feel that he's prepared enough. Um, but I had to have that conversation with him. Like, have you thought that maybe it would be good to reach out to a parent in regards to this topic um, or the way that you're referring to this? Um, and so once we, I got to that conversation, we know that they're going to be able to teach the math, the reading, the writing. They're going to have mm -hmm. a lot of mentorship mm -hmm. in their campuses. But I'm not so sure we have the support for the responsiveness of, okay, this is not a personal attack from the community. This is not a personal attack from my principal or from this mother that felt like I'm not doing enough of the Spanish reading, whatever it is. Um, it was getting to that conversation. And I started thinking about my training. And I was like, you know what? I don't think I ever had that type of training where I had to think about how we're going to respond to happy parents, difficult parents, uh, or not even difficult, but they're more like concerned parents. Mm -hmm. I mean, right now is a time to be very concerned. Mm -hmm. uh, students are learning with a new way of tools and parents are concerned their, their children are not getting what they need to be getting. And then you have some other parents who are like, you know what, I just want to worry about the health of my child. So you have all these components that I was never trained to think about. And so that was really my focus. Like, okay, let's learn about our identity and in identity, learn about the identity of your community and their concerns and respond to that. Mm -hmm. That's so beautiful. Cause it does connect to personal identity and professional identity. I don't think anyone taught me about not taking it personally, but recognizing yourself as part of that collective sort of conversation about what's best for the child, right? They're like, we're all in service to a child's growth. And um, I think that was a really beautiful way to put it. Um, One of the things I remember was the CT told me, we can't worry about the criticas, mm -hmm. all the critique. She goes, instead, we need to react to it and see how we can be community partners with. And I thought, wow, like, that's true. Like, okay, do I present scenarios to, to my teacher in training with things that might happen or could happen? And I thought, I need to start doing that more. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you. Fidelity's notion of how to be responsive, to jump in, to embrace it, to be ready as one who both knows and doesn't yet know. As a white monolingual teacher, I had many experiences of not knowing, and in certain cases, the not knowing manifested in what I feel were harmful ways. My own reflective unlearning has been to deconstruct certain white ways of being and doing. So my next guest is doctoral candidate Beth Link, and she's here to help us think deeper on how, as teacher educators, we have a particular responsibility to disrupt whiteness in action. Um, so yeah, like Adeli, I also uh, came to teaching early on in life. Um, I my dad was in the army. So growing up, we had a very migratory childhood where I, I had lived in 12 cities before graduating high school. So just all over the place and honestly, all over the world. Um, and so along, you know, all of those moves, 
um, my constant companion was, was my sketchbook and my journal. And so art became a very central part of my upbringing and a place that I found comfort, um, and, and quite a bit of power. Um, and so when I have kind of been thinking about what I wanted to do as a kid in high school, I was painfully shy, but I could talk about things if it was about art. So I could get up and speak in front of a room full of people if I was talking about an artist that I really cared about. And so I, my journey to teaching came through art education. Um, and I was an elementary art teacher for seven years in, in Denver and in uh, Austin. And after a certain point, I, I kind of realized that there was something about my practice that I, I needed to learn more about. I found that there were certain lessons that I had been teaching for a number of years that just didn't sit right with me. And I'm a white art educator and I had never received any kind of really critical training in my uh, undergraduate program. And so there were lessons that I was teaching where I was engaged in um, cultural appropriation and kind of the, the denigrating of, of sacred objects, like making African masks out of found objects and trash and things like that where I just hadn't been taught that that might not be a good practice to do. And so I had to really do some, some thinking and, and I looked around and there wasn't a lot of people in my, in my circle of teachers who were, who were thinking about this in critical ways. Most of the resources that I was looking at were, were doing these same practices. And so I felt like I needed to go back to graduate school. And so I went and got a master's in art education here at UT. Um, and, and still, I, I was still searching for that critical component. Um, I learned a lot in that program, but I really wanted to dive deeper into thinking about race and whiteness and, and gender and class and all of these things that make up identity and have really informed my own uh, practices, whether conscious or unconscious. Uh, and then also, you know, the practices of other teachers and art teachers. Um, so right now I'm a doctoral candidate in cultural studies and curriculum instruction. This is my fourth year, so I'm starting the research phase. So exciting. Um, yeah, it's very exciting and unnerving, a strange time to be doing research. Um, but I'm, I'm really excited about the idea of exploring some of these ideas with, with my own teachers, because many of them, the folks that I work with are white women like myself who you know, want to do right by their students to get into this profession because they care and they uh, genuinely want to, to help students succeed and have a passion for learning, but they may be doing practices that they don't feel quite right about, or maybe they don't know that these practices could be causing harm. Um, and so I think that I'm in a very good position to to gently lead them in reflecting on these, these issues as I would have wanted someone to, to teach me mm -hmm. um, when I was in the classroom. And so I think that there's a real uh, kind of humbleness to, to that process as someone who's been there and who has made mistakes and who is continually learning and unlearning and who wants to bring other folks on that journey sounds very inside out and it's similar to what Adele was saying about um, it's not a personal attack it's about a responsiveness um, and an awareness of your own cultural racial identity in order to do wisely right um, that's really beautiful so 
in coaching, I know it's, it's, I feel like it's like this bridge between theory and practice in a way like that, the particular role of a field supervisor is so like hard and so um, kind of underappreciated, but I think it's also one of the most important sort of struggles to go through. Um, do you have any particular um, maybe moves, particular moves you've you've picked up or practiced that um, would be useful to a field supervisor in the future who might come across an instance of harm? Yeah, I think that approaching approaching the person that you're coaching uh, as a fellow learner and understanding and respecting the logic that they're coming at it with, they're not they're not entering into these systems uh, on their own accord. They didn't come up with white supremacy out of their own brain. It's something that is deeply embedded and uh, embodied and, you know, historical and, and they're a part of this larger system. And so approaching it in that way helps you to see that, uh, you know, it's not something that they are doing intentionally to cause harm. And so how can you get them to reflect on it without implicating them as being a bad person? Um, and so I think that's where acknowledging your own failures uh, and kind of taking that hierarchical relationship of mentor-mentee and leveling the playing field a bit and saying we're both learning together and, and you know, I, I understand that you're, you're doing these wonderful things in the classroom, but let's think about this one instance. Let's like hold up this instance, this lesson, this interaction, this phrase that you used, let's hold this up and, and really think about it and turn it around in our minds and, and question what you meant by that and what would be another way to do that. And I think slowing down is something that I use a lot where uh, it's like, well, you know, you said this in the moment and they oftentimes, once you call it out and single it out, they're like, oh, I didn't mean, oh yeah, I understand. And so then you're like, well, what's another way that you could have re responded? because so many times we hit these flashpoints where things happen and we're caught off guard and our face flushes and we just react instinctively. And that's when we're drawing on our lived experiences of, sorry for the baby in the background. Love the baby. Um, <laughs> we're drawing on our lived experiences of just em embodied as, you know, white people apart, who are part of uh, institutions of whiteness. And so in those moments, we draw on those parts of ourselves. And so it's by disrupting that that pattern and by really slowing down and thinking about, well, what made you say that? What's another response that you could have said? What were the implications for the students of what you said? And how might you kind of untangle some of these different threads so that if you are in a situation like this again, you can respond differently, mm -hmm. right? And I think that a lot of it is also about slowing down to see is something that we talk about in art education a lot. Like, how can you, yeah, slow mm -hmm. down to see and really uh, take the time to, to look at the details of something. And so I think that plucking these moments out and, and really making decisions visible is something that is very helpful for, for white people, especially who so much of uh, white supremacy functions on invisibility and ignorance and things that are functioning below the surface. So by slowing down to see you're actually able to to get to the root of some of these things that's so beautiful Adelia is any of this sort of mirroring um, some of your noticings or practices or is there anything you'd like to add 
I think the slowing down to see is is perfectly um, defines what what I would also implement. I, as Beth has mentioned, I'm a proponent of campesino to campesino methodologies, like farmer to farmer. So I've been in in a course with Beth where we're sharing ideas. It's not a top down. It's like okay, and we build sideways, right? Um, and before we know it. I'm a better, you know, mentor, coach because of what she's saying and vice versa. But I implement that with, with my, my students as well. And I tell, I told him from the very first day, I'm like, you're my colleague. Uh, we're here to learn together. But yeah, you know, a lot of times you do need to actually slow them down to see what's going on. Um, not only for them, but for yourself too. Uh, as a, as a coach, I'm like, maybe I'm going too fast here. Um, or the expectations that I have, uh, you know, there's so many contexts when you go into a classroom, as Beth mentioned, you have the, the societal context, you know, and the political context and the cultural context, and that's a lot to take in. And at the same time, you have all these pressures from the school district and, and then you're building administrators to do certain, you know, tasks. And as an early teacher, this is just a lot. And I think slowing down is the best way. I mean, what is, even if you're not an artist, like we're all artists, right? But there are people that don't believe they're artists. Even if you just sketch it, that is like mm-hmm. the best thing mm-hmm. I think I would also recommend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Like uh, one of the things I really love thinking about is how in these spaces where we don't n- n- really know what to do, we create language and we create create imagery in order to represent what we kind of mean, right? In order to kind of bridge ourselves from one place to the other. So I think I, I think that's beautiful. I loved your language where you say we we build sideways, and Beth, when you say we slow down to see, and that building sideways does sound to me like a bridge. Um, I'm curious about how you would change our program, or let's say you were uh, asked to field supervise again. Um, or teach the class, what changes would you make or put at the top? I think I mentioned this last time we were all together and that um, we do a really good job of doing the neighborhood walks. Um, I think that's amazing. We do a really good job of teaching our students of being critical of curriculum, but also being critical of um, what is needed. So I think that one aspect I would like to add, I went to go visit my old school, Galindo Elementary, here, and uh, my son had come to visit, and that's where he went to school. And as we were driving to the neighborhood, neighborhood it had changed so drastically. Um, but he started asking me questions I wasn't able to answer and that he felt I needed to know as a teacher. <laughs> and they were all historical questions like, well, what's the history of the school? When was it like, when was it built, but why, and who lived here? before I came to school here. Mm-hmm. What is the history of Galindo Elementary? What is the history of the school district here in Austin? Um, and why is the Palatero not walking the streets anymore? And I couldn't answer that. I was like, and, you know, I gave him a small lesson about gen- gentrification. And still he was like, well, you teachers need to know that. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I just felt like this sense of like, wow, I don't, you know, usually it's just so like procedural. You get this mm-hmm. mentor, right? Uh, this is the school you're going to be at. We're throwing you here with a CT, but there's no like connection to to the school and community. And so that questioning, that critical questioning, doesn't become part of this new teacher. Uh, 
at, at this point, why should it, right? They're just going there to just get those concepts and, okay, I, I need my student teaching checklist, checklist, you know, now I can go teach. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, again, let's slow down. <laughs> let's slow down and learn um, why we're here and what is your purpose. Like, when you do become a teacher in a similar school, in a similar neighborhood, what is your purpose? Let's look at the future. So identity building is not only about the past and present, but do you dream and imagine yourself in the future in this setting? Mm. You get snaps for that. That was nice. That was nice. Yeah, it reminds me also, Beth, of when you had said that being a white person coming into this space, like you didn't create it. It is there. It is a, a racialized system. It's an institutional sort of sticky, sticky problem. So um, how would you react? What, how would you change the program or what would you add or put on the top? Yeah, I think I think that it takes a real commitment to if you're if you're committed to undoing white supremacy and anti-racist teaching, it needs to be a front to back, a soup to nuts uh, mm-hmm. c- uh, commitment. And so I think that it involves at the front end, like thinking about who we're admitting into the program and what are their commitments and who are the types of people that that we want to be teachers that we want to invest in. Um, and then also like throughout the the program, like I teach ALD 327, Social Cultural Influences on Learning. And in that course, it really addresses a lot of these issues of race, gender, and class uh, head on and, and really deals with them deeply. But that's a lot of pressure for one course to be undoing all of this learning and unlearning in one course. And so that needs to be threaded throughout every course, including you know, science methods, math methods, everything. Because I have students who are like, well, yeah, I, I believe in culturally responsive pedagogy, but that doesn't apply to math. Mm. Or I believe in problem-posing education, but you can't do that in science. Hmm. And so it's all of these contradictions we need to be modeling for them as instructors of all of these courses. How can you do this? Um, and then also as somebody who moves between different colleges and different spaces, I think that we need to be collaborating with educators across UT. There are amazing educators doing incredible things in the College of Theater and Dance who I work with and in visual art and, you know, I'm sure the College of Music and and other places on campus are doing incredible things, but we're, we're very stuck in the College of Education and kind of siloed. And so I think that that's really important. And then on the, the back end, when these teachers go out into the world, how are we uh, helping support them through this process? Is there some kind of sustained mentoring that could occur so that they're not just like, as soon as they graduate, we just cut them off and we don't talk to them again? You know, how are we, speaking of bridges and building sideways, how are we building that support as they go into these environments? Because if we do want them to maintain this uh, critical reflective identity, we need to support that through, you know, having kind of communities that come together to critically reflect on things as they're in positions where they may be getting other types of feedback from administrators, from other teachers, how do we sustain that? Mm -hmm. And then also as a graduate student, uh, I think that we need to invest more in our field supervisors, frankly, if we have uh, field supervisors who for 10 hours, they're supervising, you know, 12 or 13 people, they're just spread way too thin to do this job well. Um, And if you want, really wonderful coaching that takes time and and is investing in the relationship of of these people then we need to fund them accordingly absolutely absolutely yes i agree 
Oh man, you guys are so brilliant. I'm so lucky to get to be with you and, and record your stories. And um, is there anything else you want to add? I really am hoping that this this podcast is one of four. Really sort of sets up a spring. I'm just, I keep thinking back on our conversations and I'm dazzled by the array of expertise and um passion, interest, wisdom for the future, and it's all right here, all the people power. Um, We just have to reach out and ask and talk to people about it. So I leave the last of the podcast with a couple of questions to guide you on your way. Um, One, how does your personal identity connect with your professional identity? And two, How do we create race-conscious and social justice-oriented discourse in order to make systemic change and shift consciousness? Finally, how do we do this from the inside out? And how are you valuing courage and determination in this work? I'd love to hear from you at kerryalexander at utexas.edu. Be well, everybody. And I'll see you at Sanchez when everything's safe again. Bye.